Uh, welcome to today's conversation with Agility by Nature. Uh, I'm joined today by Tom Erst. Welcome, Tom. How are you? I'm very well. Good morning. Yeah, we're uh, another lockdown interview, I'm afraid, over Zoom. <laughs> not, not in a, a, a nice pub or a, or a fancy wine bar. No, no, sadly. Yeah, so I could, I could probably get some wine, but let's not. It's probably a bit early. It is a little bit early even for me. I think it's tea o'clock rather than wine o'clock. Mm. So, Tom, for those of you who don't know you, I mean, you've got a great background. There's a lot of finance and finance trading. Uh, and latterly, you've been doing a lot of government work and, uh, in that area as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but one thing that really struck me about your background is you've got this lovely mix of development management, technical management, project and program management, and architect level influence as well. It's making mm-hmm. you a bit of a triple threat, to be honest. Um, and, you know, how did you get into, you know, how did your career start? I know you had your degree, and was it Wolverhampton? I, well, so I was, a uh, my initial IT job was actually a computer operator at Wolverhampton Borough Council oh, right. back in 1980. <laughs> right. um, but then it went, because I left school and went to did that, and then I left that and decided I should have gone to Polytechnic because I couldn't get to university. Um, various misadventures later, via um i didn't do an it degree actually my degrees in um psychology and sociology uh and then i wanted to be a nurse realized it wasn't the best thing for me and got a job as a trainee programmer at british airways writing assembly code so that's when i started um was an assembly then a c programmer for a while um and then moved from British Airways into a company that was called IDS at the time, I think, Intercom Data Systems, yeah. I'm doing financial software, product called Fidesa. Um, Stayed with them. Interestingly, had a breakdown working for them, which was an interesting experience, possibly a topic for another conversation. Um, But was useful in the sense that I found out what, for me, what having a breakdown feels like. And it's been useful since then in some high stress situations to see, to introspect and have an idea of what sort of uh, level of stress I'm actually under. Um, And then through them got into uh, working in the city on trading systems um, and then into specifically, I then spent, uh, eventually spent about 10 years writing FX trading systems for various investment banks um discovered agile along the way was doing agile before agile was a thing um there was a place called the c2 wiki um which uh this will happen a lot in this interview a chap whose name i've forgotten created <laughs> ward I, cunningham about some of your heroes so it was ward cunningham be- created that um, yeah. and it I've was where the it was originally the patterns wiki where the pattern community went to develop and talk about patterns and then um kent beck started talking about extreme programming on there and that actually divided that community um but so when i got there um, they were talking a lot about extreme programming, so I um, got involved in that, um, and that resonated very strongly with me. Um, this was back in '98, I think '99. Uh, um, that resonated very strongly with me, and I met up with some people um, at the Extreme Tuesday Club, which is one of the very first 
meetups, wasn't a meetup. Uh-huh. And then, um, and actually through them got my job at Dresner, uh, where is where I went and ended up um, working on the FX trading system, which was, um, which in retrospect was probably where a lot of my approaches were formed because I had a really good team, a uh, really good team. Um, um, and they, we developed, we developed the trading system and then we evolved it. It was a proper product rather than a set of projects. Um, and this is relatively common, I think, in the, in the city in investment banking, because the way all the forces that are working there, the traders want you to keep adding stuff. Yeah. So you have this heartbeat of new, new stuff, new features they're always asking for. Um, and new non-functional features so that it needs to go faster Um, you know that's the usual one Um, so those forces all aligned to push us into a frequent delivery um, high quality releases because you can't release a trading system that doesn't work um, or gets the wrong numbers Um, so all of those drivers pushed us into a i mean we created a CICD pipeline before they were a thing we had continuous we you know continuous integration very early on um we had a testing didn't do tests first but we had a very strong testing culture yeah um we built it and we owned it so the team were all on the support rotor so yeah. you know we all took our turns and we woken up at two o'clock in the morning did you pardon you owned your sins, so if there's some bad... We owned our sins, and also what it does is it proves it, it does not drive quality when you think you might get woken up at 2 a.m. because there's a problem. Uh-huh. Um, uh, so that's, so all of those things. And the great thing in retrospect about that was that over the years of running that, not only did we deliver features at a regular cadence, we also evolved the architecture regularly so yeah. that when we when i left there was very little of the original code base and architecture from when we started because yeah. we had we'd moved from a um a classic early days java enterprise application running in a commercial java enterprise application server and against a commercial database with um and running on Solaris and by the time I left we were running on um, immutable Java deployments that weren't part of a weren't run inside a server on an open source database on Linux you know and and this wasn't this was before they were a thing this was by 2005 2006 so so the lessons learned from that were that the architecture you start with is not what you're committed to right you can change it um you can continue to deliver architectural improvements while you're delivering features yeah you can manage technical debt um all those good things we we proved yeah in a relatively small environment i mean we had uh, four teams world globally um but, but and that and that and that stayed with me ever since. So when people say, "Oh, you can't do that," and I said, "Well, I have done that." Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's not like I have to go and look at the textbooks. It's I know I've I've done this, and it isn't easy, but it is absolutely manageable. And and the other interesting thing about that whole thing is because I look back on that with great fondness, and then 
my my wife reminds me that but you 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 were it was a nightmare you were always immensely stressed um which is true and and that's another lesson learned is that um I think a lot of people think, oh, when we're really agile, we'll be, it'll all be lovely. We'll just come into work, we'll float through the day, we'll do good stuff, and it'll be great. And it's not like that, because it's, what we do is hard, yeah. so it's, and, uh, it's, and pressured. So yeah. it's always, it's, so it's um, that sort of role you still need to, um, you still need to accept the fact that somebody once said, I don't know who it was, said that agile doesn't, solve your problems it does make them visible yeah absolutely. <laughs> you know, so it's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. so that was uh so, and yeah so um so that was that then um can i just ask about i mean you, you raised about architecture and the fact that sure. it can evolve and it can move yeah um, i suppose for the last few years i've heard about companies substantial brands high street brands bank whatever they may be and they seem to be anchored to legacy architecture legacy monoliths and they don't seem mm. to be able to shift it for whatever reason mm. um i'm wondering now if with covid uh covid sorry and um there might be a, a, a the burning platform you ain't got much choice now you're gonna have to change i mean how would you if someone rings up and say tom what are we going to do about this legacy architecture i've been hanging on to for the last 15 years what's your thoughts mm. as a sort of an architect about approaching that and i know that's a very huge horrible question i mean it kind of depends on the context to be honest but yes i mean the thing is that so replacing doing a like for like replacement of your legacy system with a non-legacy system yeah yeah is an incredibly risky venture right because the only people who are going to benefit from it really are the it department oh okay because because that's what you're doing is you're a pun that's a bit disappointing to hear well well the thing is what because well it's a like for like replacement so feature wise it's the same so yeah. who's so the business aren't going to benefit from that are they what they're what they're what they're paying for is the promise that it will move faster later. Yes. Um, but it, the initial build is no benefit. And also you get this dreadful thing about, well, it's got to be exactly like the old one with all of the things that actually the old one does wrong. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so it's a very risky venture. Um, it's generally harder than people think. Yeah. And if it runs over more than a certain amount, there'll be a lot of, there'll be a lot of pressure within the organization to can it. Exactly. Exactly. So, and that's, and often when you look at a legacy system and they say, we'd like to get rid of it and they say, and that you'll find actually, and this is the third go. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah exactly. But we couldn't do it. And in fact, what we now have is you've got four legacy systems because we've got the original <laughs> one and all the half-assed ones we kind of built, but they do a little stuff. Yeah. Um, and they're still there. So I think that, and this isn't and, and the other thing is working with legacy code is not easy um, oh. and it is scary and you have to invest and you have to invest in testing and you have to invest in and initially it's like um, metaphor time it's like the old movies when you started a really heavy train back in the age of steam yeah. initially you're not going to see any movement at all yeah yeah you know you're going to be spending a lot of force and not seeing any movement yeah and then you might see a bit of movement and then a bit more movement yeah um there's a bunch of architectural patterns i mean michael feathers wrote a book working safely with legacy code or effectively legacy code which is still the only book 
remarkably written about working with legacy code. Good Lord. Um, and considering it's the thing that 90% probably of enterprise software developers do, yeah. you'd think there'd be a library of them, but it's the only one. Um, uh, yeah, so <laughs> I think the message I give them is don't replace it, evolve it. Yes. To evolve it safely, you're going to have to build, you're going to have to invest money in testing and in analyzing the code base. Yeah. There are tools you can buy. Um, you're going to have to spend money on environments. One of the reasons I don't like basing my systems on Oracle mm -hmm. is because of their licensing model. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what that licensing model, it's the same with a lot of, it's the same with most um, paper instance models, mm -hmm. is that it stops you. So one of the big, sorry, one of the big wins we had when I was at, when we moved from WebLogic to JBoss, when I was at Dresden doing our, doing my evolving the architecture was that as soon as you went to JBoss, we could have as many instances of it as we wanted. Yeah. For no, for no yeah. the cost was we needed another box or needed another, you know, just run it. and what that meant was that we could, one of the constraints of the architecture was taken away. Yeah. yeah. So there's a thing that a lot of architects don't see, which is, what are the constraints on the development pipeline yeah. and what are the constraints on the deployment yeah. that are put in there by the cost of the third party product we've decided to use? Yeah. Yeah. So when you're looking at this from a systems perspective, actually having a free container to deploy my stuff in or a free database takes away a whole set of constraints. Yeah. And, and they're mostly constraints around delivery again. Um, so I can have 10 delivery environments. <laughs> yeah. which when we, if you're an oracle that's another 10 instances of oracle or one big one which yeah. you then have to manage centrally which has its own set of problems yeah so um yeah so that's that's an important win uh so one of the things i would and and yeah the the that was working at an organization and they had done the classic thing is that they were on oracle in order to get quick wins over the lifetime of their legacy application, they'd put more and more stuff into Oracle Store procedures, yeah. which meant migrating from Oracle was now almost impossible. Yeah, yeah. Because it's now AWS, interestingly, are investing lots of money on helping people migrate to Oracle. Who would have thought? Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but that's an interesting point, you know. So it's an interesting thing is, do you, a lot of the constraints you see in a legacy system are put in there because they were there to manage um, performance bottlenecks, which may not be there anymore. Mm, yeah, yeah. They were there because you're, you couldn't afford big enough servers. Yes. So you move stuff to the database. Yeah, yeah. But it might be now that actually, especially if you're on the cloud, you can afford some really big servers and take stuff from the database, simplify the database to the point where you can come off a commercial database and onto a open source one, which gives you a whole an, an additional raft of um, opportunities. Uh, it, it's, it's really interesting because I mean, obviously, databases often are forgotten how they can help or how they can constrain development mm. shops moving forward over time. 
um they often tend to be the one thing mm. um the 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 classic argument of how do you scale lots of little boxes or one mega huge box that pounds away i think that's largely gone away one thing i would say though that i'm and i wonder if you thought about this is the movement from old to new could really just stop the business doing any features you know and the frustration yeah. as they wait mm. and wait uh, something very expensive and as you say and i'm just going to get the same thing at the end of it it can be quite a create a massively toxic relationship between you know the commercial side of the business and the IT who's desperately trying to move things forward. Absolutely, and this is and this is where the architectural thinking about organisations comes in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, systems comes in because what you see is that the IT department is focusing on. Um, the Phoenix Project. Have you read the Phoenix Project? Oh, they're, they're, okay, it's really you know, good. Much, I would say over fifty percent of the people I talk to raise the Phoenix Project yeah. uh, read, which is really interesting. It's probably the most most popular book in the the series so far. Yeah. So the Phoenix Project and the Unicorn Project. Uh, but the Phoenix. But the point about the Phoenix. The point about a big IT retrofit project is it sucks in all the IT resources. So they're all doing, from the business's point of view, nothing. Yeah. Except that there was this over the horizon, there is this thing that's going to arrive and solve all your problems. Yeah. 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 Um, I have a whole thing about what I call the attention horizon. Once it's over the horizon, you stop thinking about it. Um, but the, but business still needs stuff. Yeah. And that's where shadow IT happens. They need stuff. So I've, was in an organization recently where the largest shadow part of the shadow IT that had been created was created by the CEO because she yeah. couldn't get stuff done. Right. So they created a non IT delivery group to give them the stuff they couldn't have from the IT team because they were too busy doing the big thing. <laughs> um, so, so you just see this, this, that once the, so, and this is the point, once the IT, um, once the objectives of the IT teams, the organization, diverge from the objectives of the whole organization. Yeah. And this is what I said about the, the only real beneficiaries of a tech replacement are IT. Yeah. So while they're doing their big tech replacement project, they're not meeting the needs of the organization. The organization will get its needs met somehow. Mm. They'll either, and they, you see what they do. They either go out and get, a consultancy to come in to build something for them. Correct. Well, they set up shadow IT teams right. or shadow IT teams evolve. Somebody gets their credit card out and starts an AWS account and starts building stuff. Uh -huh. um, these things happen because IT are not meeting the, the organization's needs. So it's very important in any organization to look at how the forces are aligning. Yeah. Yeah. And if the forces of um, the IT departments aren't aligned with the forces of the rest of the world. And, and, and this is one of the places where projects start causing problems, mm. you know, because they, they aren't aligned with the corporate strategy. They're generally, projects are generally aligned with some senior person's I want to thing. Mm. <laughs> you know? um, okay. and, and that's aligned with their objectives but not necessarily with the organization's objectives and then you go through the whole oh well you've got to raise a business case and the board's got to approve it and the, the, but but actually that's generally either you get people to say oh well i don't want to spoil nick's day so i'm going to give him his thing yeah yeah 
um, or you just get these massive confrontational sessions in the board yeah. because they don't have they don't have that how is this aligned with our product strategy because mm -hmm. they don't have one because mm. they just have lots of projects mm. and then you get these very adversarial relationships within the senior leadership team and then you start getting a dysfunctional senior leadership team and then you're really in a mess mm. so most of these issues that you see with an organ so winding right back to your early question when somebody said if somebody came to me and said we've got this legacy system yeah what should we do with it I would go and say, well, what is your, what is your product strat? What is your organization's overall product strategy? Yes. Yeah. Because it might be that what you do with it is you put it in a box and you, you sort of seal it up yeah, yeah. and just say, we're not going to touch it, but we're not going to develop it anymore. And we're going to rigorously build stuff outside it and use the strangler and cut bits off from it. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, that's not necessarily very easy because it's quite often a big monolith and it's hard to slice things off, but that's at least gives you a, that at least gives you a strategic way forward yeah. that your organization will get behind and everybody from and everybody, the other members of the senior leadership team can say, yes, actually I understand why we're doing this. Yeah. And you need to get some relatively quick wins to build trust. Yeah. So a lot of the things, again, around a lot of the dysfunctions in organizations are down to lack of trust. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are down to lack of trust inside an IT organization because they haven't got a good reputation for delivering stuff. Yeah. Um, and if you don't deliver stuff regularly, you lose the trust. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so again, that goes back to the point that you, so in terms of coaching an organization, IT has to get better at delivering. Yeah. Up to a point, they have to get better at delivering it enough so they get to the point where you can see very clearly that the, the, the bottleneck now in the system of delivering value to the customer is not within IT delivery. It's normally the next thing you see. So you get IT doing better, and then they say, but we're just not getting the stuff to do. Yeah. Yeah. Then the danger is they start, because they can deliver better, they start doing stuff they haven't been asked for yeah, to yeah. keep busy. That's a, yeah. That's a dreadful <laughs> state to be in. I mean, it's, it, you, then you're doing the wrong thing really well, which is a really bad thing to, place to be. But um, they they get um, then you can go back up the funnel if you like, in the classic sort of sense, and say, why is it taking so long? Yes. For an idea to get, because when IT takes a year to deliver a feature, if it takes a year for you to decide whether they should be delivering that feature or not, you kind of don't notice it so much mm, but mm. the point when it says we can deliver a feature in a month or in two weeks yes if it then takes you 12 months to decide to do that yes that then goes back everybody can start saying actually our bottleneck is not in it delivery our bottleneck is trying to decide what to do yeah 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 then the product strategy again starts feeding in and um there's a really good book called project to product um it's in IT Revolution's website, can't remember the author again, but again, that's a very, very interesting point about how somebody moved, how organizations move. Yeah. And you can start seeing meaningful metrics. So you can see um, a lead time metric, you know, the, the classic lean startup, a hard to ka-ching metric. Yeah. Um, yeah. If that is 12 months, of which a month is delivering it at the end, you can start saying, well, if we want to start learning quickly, we need to take that 11 months of deciding to do it 
and shrink that down to the same order of magnitude as how long it takes to deliver it. Yes, yes. And then once you get that down to a month, decide to do it in a month to deliver it, then we can start making those even smaller. Yeah. And then you can start getting much faster feedback yeah. until you get to the point where, you know, the, the nirvana where you can have an idea in the morning, put something out into production in the afternoon, see what the metrics are in the evening and then tweak it the next day. Yeah. Um, most organizations don't need to be there. Yes. But in terms of your, your sort of North Star, this is the direction of travel, you should be traveling in that sort of direction. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I, it's, I, like, I, I like the way that the, 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 we've gone from the legacy uh, <laughs> as an experienced architect like yourself approach <laughs> legacy and we've now ended up in uh, strategy and product, <laughs> um, which is not classically seen where IT often is, but inevitably yeah. we end up in those, uh, those areas. I think the other point you made as well, which I think mm. is interesting, is you know, there's this rush to how many times can you release per day, per second, mm. per hour. Mm. And you think, well, that's not really the question, is how frequently can you release at uh, uh, your choice that uh, your choice could be three times a day it could be yeah. three times a week it could be three times mm -hmm. a week. but having the choice to, to yeah. control your your release of your catalog of jane to me seems to be what you're after uh and you know only being able to release four times a year when everybody else is able to change and pivot 12 times a year doesn't sound like a satisfactory place to be and the and the other thing is it, it really isn't <laughs> but the other thing about that is that the if you can release if you can make a code change and release it in an hour yeah um that is the only process you need right if you have a and you don't need to worry about branches or yes. yeah, yeah yeah parallel developments or anything like that because it's like boom 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 done it um if you can only release if it takes you a weekend to do a release and it takes you a month to run at it to do it safely then you have to have multiple processes. You have to have a hot fix process. Yeah. Yeah. You have to have a multiple parallel development yeah. branches. You have to have how your branch strategy works. Everything gets really complicated. If you can get down, the nearer you get to single piece flow, the simpler everything gets, the yes. less management overhead you have. Yeah. Um, and the more flexibility you have. So, um, if you and if and if your changes are small and relatively safe to roll back, yeah. you then don't have to or to fix in an hour. You then don't have to. You you're taking your risk appetite. Your risk is lower, which means your risk appetite can remain the same, but you can do more stuff. Yeah. Um, so you can, you know, I wouldn't. And and it, and that's that's pretty context dependent. So if you're running a website, people buying stuff, yes, you can probably do some relatively risky relatively experimental changes if you're if it's your pricing algorithm on your trading system it could cost you a lot of money if you get it wrong um yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so that and if it's your if it's your general ledger system it could cost you the organization if you get it wrong yeah. um so there are different levels but that doesn't mean that you need to do this high ceremony bimodal the people in the general ledger system do release every year and spend six months running at it because actually that's very risky as well mm -hmm. there's no reason why they couldn't deliver just as fast you can put more quick risk risk management pieces in place um yeah hold the dev sec ops 
you know, moving security to the left in the pipeline so that the security is built in from the, from the left. I mean, it's a really weird thing to me. I keep coming across this is that the, you've got a delivery pipeline for software for application code, you know, it goes to dev and then test and then into the load test pipeline into production. But the ops team patch the operating system in production. Yeah. So we just boom, okay, we upgraded the operating system. Oh, everything broke. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, that's not our fault. You should have, you know, it's like, well, everything goes to the, you know, the, the rule that everything goes to the pipeline is, to me, blindingly obvious, but obviously hasn't been. And this goes down to this, there's a, there is a adversary relationship between IT and the rest of the business a lot of the time. IT is not delivering stuff fast enough to the business. Yeah. And there's an adversary relationship between the people who run the thing and the people who build the thing. Um, DevOps is there to modify that. But but what it comes down to again is that you've got these people with different in the system, you've got different parts of the system are being measured for different things. So the ops team feel they're being measured on how stable the production environment is. Mm. The way to keep a production environment stable is to not change it. Yes, absolutely. So, so the ops teams, if they're being measured on stability of the production environment, will be very loath to allow anybody to release anything without proving to them it won't work. And in the worst case, and again, I was somewhere like this not that long ago, the ops team is a separate organization with a contractual relationship with the primary organization. And they will absolutely not let you release stuff into their responsibility without demonstrating that it's completely safe. Yeah. Um, and what that means is you never release anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so again, it all comes down to breaking down those organizational barriers within the system. Yeah. So that everybody is aligned to the same winning conditions, which inevitably leads to, in my view, to a product orientation with vertical product areas where you've got the business and the development and the operational side of things managing a relatively small footprint yeah. with a relatively low blast radius if it goes wrong in production yeah so they can afford to move as fast as they feel safe to move yeah um and then and and those those forces are aligned yeah which is as i said so my my whole sort of experience leads me to this product orientation and, and the other thing about product is that it, it makes you think in the long term so one of the things you observe in projects a lot is that let's cut testing to get over the line yeah because yeah. the objective of a project manager is to deliver the scope they were told to deliver and the time they were told to deliver it of course and to um, the, presumably as well pardon? Um, to the budget presumably as well that often <laughs> the budget often changes doesn't it they often let's hire some more people which yeah. you know doesn't work but people still do it yeah. um but so things that go out the window are quality because if i can get it over the line on time into production it's not my problem anymore um and building a repeatable pipeline well we're only going to release it once because the project's over then so let's not bother doing that yeah, yeah um yeah uh, making sure that you know we'll do knowledge transfer after we've gone live yeah, yeah. You know, never or, happens. Or to read, or, to say, or we won't do knowledge transfer. You know, so whereas if you've got a product that you know you're going to be looking after, so going back to my days, back yeah. with my FX trading system, we knew that we were the second line support. We would get phoned at three a.m. if you put a crap thing into production that broke. So 
and we knew that we would have to change that code in a week or a month's time when we did the next release so we were driven to constantly refactoring the code to make it maintainable and we were driven to make sure it was it was um, high quality because we would suffer as much as any, we were the most likely to suffer now the side effect of that was that we could change things fast and we could stay aligned with the business yeah yeah tom um you know we've been talking for a while for a while it's been really fascinating i've got a thousand and one questions but i think it really is tier clock um can you come back and maybe we should talk about you know your passion for coding i know we didn't touch on mob programming um i've got some thoughts and i had some questions about you know tdd and does it take too much time i've seen people avoiding it um and we didn't even talk about governance and, and regulated uh, so yeah i think we need we've probably got another podcast we can get out of this um what a joy to listen to you thank you great insights as usual mm-hmm. um well i hope everybody enjoyed today's conversation with tom and if you'd like to work with tom or find out more details about all of our excellent community mentors and practitioners you can go to our website which is www.agilitybynature.com you can find tom and me also on linkedin of course uh, and you can give me a call on 07803 tom a pleasure as always. Thank you so much for your time. Um, and I'm going to have a bit of tea and possibly a slice of cake. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. Cheers, man.